Good day, everyone. Welcome back to another Friday wrap. It's uh, it's definitely warming up in uh, in Sydney. We are now officially in the second quarter of FY22. Um, so new quarter, new day, new start um, for everyone. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it's good. We are in Sydney. We are certainly starting to uh, to see a, a planned lockdown, um, uh, lockdown easing uh, in about a week's over a week's time so i think john and i are very very happy about that <laughs> i guess but at the same time i think uh, our, our melbourne friends uh jazz i think your your numbers your numbers are starting to peak again in terms of the COVID numbers isn't it it's yeah. Yeah, it's, crazy. it's crazy it's crazy do you guys have a i think i think you guys also got a easing a roadmap easing planned as well isn't it? what's that looking like at the moment um do you know well the good thing is the schools are opening up uh, later this month, yeah, end of October, um, and uh, uh, current vaccine. I think fifty percent of the population is vaccinated. So is that first or double? Uh, that's fifty percent is double. Double. Okay. Okay. So and that's good. That's good. Uh, Catching up quickly. I think. I think it will just open up now. In in give it another month's time. There's no choice left after that. What will be interesting to see is. Once it opens up, uh, how will go next year in terms of are we going to see any more lockdowns or are we done now where population is vaccinated? Doesn't matter even if there's a new variant, hopefully not, but if there is, uh, how is Dan Andrew going to go about it? Because obviously the lockdown hasn't worked clearly this time. So I was just gonna raise that's what happened in Singapore, isn't it? There was a was a clear evidence where they, you know, double vaxxed, open up. And then the number of cases, new cases, are still spiking mm-hmm. in that instance. So I, I don't know how it's gonna, how it's really gonna look like. I think Israel was the same thing. Israel's yeah. the same. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm just hoping that he doesn't lock Victoria down again, because uh, <laughs> obviously lockdown is not going to do anything. So no, well, it's, it's clearly not working. Unfortunately, you know, the way we look at, it, I think the new, the new perception now is we're just gonna have to coexist with them. Yeah somewhat and maybe the maybe the real long-term solution is we're just going to have to get the third jab to boost our immunity again uh, in that instance which i think that's what israeli are doing at the moment isn't it try to get try to get the third jab mm. yeah fingers okay. crossed uh yeah yeah you definitely don't want homeschooling again jazz i can see that <laughs> no one wants that probably john the same goes with you too so you can imagine that's uh, it's being extremely difficult Anyway, it's been an interesting week again. I have to say this week is all about, talks about curbing the lending, which, uh, you know, unless you're living under the rock, otherwise you would have hear something. I'm getting, I'm getting messages from my clients the whole time asking about it. And I was like, okay, well, so maybe we should talk about that. Um, you know, I reckon given that that's the hottest topic in town at the moment, uh, what that means and, you know, what, what, what's our perception in terms of how it's going to impact the property market. Um, I guess in the short term and medium and long term. You know, all three of us are kind of more of a medium long term type of guy. Um, but I think you know, given some some opinions that's being shared around media, we can also touch a bit on the short term. So just to give everyone a bit of context, uh, earlier this week, Josh Frydenberg, our treasurer, has officially, uh, I guess, changed his stance. Previously, I know the RBA was saying, well, we can't control property prices. And at the moment, we're not really doing anything. We're just being monitoring carefully. 
but our treasurer has jumped out earlier this week to say we've consulted with the Council of Financial Regulators, which is you know the APRA, the Essex, uh, the RBAs, the Treasuries. They've all came to the conclusion that yes, we probably need to do something now, given the fact that the the high DTI or the debt to income ratio um, is starting to lurk its ugly head. I think based on the recent statistics, we're talking about one in every five borrowers are going over a DTI of six or more. So in other words, you know, if you think about that, that's pretty scary uh, in terms of how much debt that people are racking up right now beyond their, uh, in terms of six or seven times of their income levels or the household income levels. So, um, you know, that obviously will pose a potential threat if we continue to let it loose uh, in, ter in terms of financial stability. And uh, that's why um, our treasurer has given instructions for the CFR to now look at ways on how we can potentially mitigate or curb lending a little bit so that um, put a bit of restrictions on those high DTI levels is, is the way I, I look at it. But um, yeah, gents, I guess I'll open up the forum for you guys now that I've set the context. Uh, what does that mean? I mean, you know, uh, how would that how would that impact the property prices and and the sentiments? Um, you know, just just based on that news that's been that's been released. I mean, we haven't seen any actual implementations yet, but of course, this is the start uh, of, of that message coming out. Uh, but what do you think is going to happen? Um, putting out the crystal ball. It's funny. Uh, I was just. I was giggling when you used the word financial stability, David. <laughs> That's what I always use, mate. <laughs> what is financial stability uh, when when we know that uh, there is unprecedented amount of uh, new yeah. cur currency being freshly brought into the system? Right. So financial stability, uh, uh, but. Regarding the curbing or regulators, likes of Josh Friedenberg talking about all this stuff, um, does it is it a is it a surprise? I think we discussed this in a lot of previous episodes uh, last year, late last year, even before the property market was uh, starting to turn towards north. Uh, there is no surprise there. I think what is surprising is the amount of growth that we saw within the last 12 months, up to 30%, depending upon where you are, uh, has obviously got them thinking once again that if we were to see another 30% growth or anything like that next year, that could pretty much wipe out first home buyers out of the market completely for a very, very long period of time or the owner of buyers as well, right? Um, and not to mention the some of the inflation numbers that we talk in general on top of that uh, when you're renovating and all that stuff. So it is not a surprise at all. Uh, it's, it's good to some extent for the so-called financial stability of the system. Uh, and we have seen the banks as well raising the rates, fixed rates, some of the banks. So it's, uh, I think a lot of it will be job warning more than actual actions. There will be some actions, but they won't be as strict as strict as they were in 2015-16 whenever APRA intervened back then. So I think it's more of job warning than the actual action. So we'll see what how, how they uh, play in this space. 
But uh, I think I think we'll still see property prices grow next year, but not thirty percent, maybe maybe fifteen percent. John, yeah, I agree with you. Picking up on that point about financial stability, the 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 free market provides financial stability, and whatever lowering interest rates to zero is is the opposite of financial stability. Uh, and you know, I, I'm always absolutely astounded when when politicians and central bankers come out and they say oh geez what uh, the 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 um, property market's uh, booming what a what a what a shock we we need to do something it's like no 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 this is the bubble that you created like you you imbecile sorry uh to the to the listeners out there but like um you know they shut the economy down and then they create all this unemployment because they mandate that people don't go to work, then they lower interest rates to compensate us for not being able to, to create an income. And that uh, those lower interest rates create an asset bubble and they go, I guess we've got to do something about the asset bubble. It's like, no, 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 stop, stop, stop helping, stop, stop breaking things. Um, so uh, that said, um, they will do it. It's the, the problem is you know, if I was a Martian coming down from 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 Mars and I was having a look at the economy, I'd say, "Oh, your your problem is that interest rates are too low. They're, they're not um, reflecting the amount of savings and uh, the demand for lending that you have in your economy, and uh, you should put interest rates up uh, or get out of the interest rate game altogether." Um, but uh, but but um, I, I suspect that they are going to start regulating, um, and I think it'll it'll be via. Uh, APRA regulation, not via higher interest rates. But David, I wanted to pick up on something you, you talked about, which was quite interesting, and it's the metrics, one of the metrics that they're looking at, which is the DTI, the uh, the debt to income ratio. It's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting KPI that they rely on, and it's interesting that they rely on it because in a low interest rate world, most of the wealth out there is based on um, capital values. It's based on things like high property prices, but not high rents. It's based on high crypto values that, uh, or, or high asset values. The, the I in DTI is far less relevant than it was, say, in the 80s or 90s or something like that, when income was a really important um, part of owning an asset. Nowadays, we own assets for the capital value and not for the income that they spin off. And then for the regulators to go back and say, no, no, we're reprioritizing income to re as a measure for how healthy the economy is and how healthy lending is. I find that it's quite interesting. Um, you know, I, I was chatting to a mate before the podcast who uh, sent me a, um, a sale in Haberfield that went for $7.5 million. It was all over the Sydney Morning Herald uh, because it went way over the guide, way over the reserve, millions over the reserve. And he writes to me and says, crypto, crypto profits. It's probably true. It's probably right. But the DTI um, wouldn't, wouldn't explain how someone could afford a $7.5 million house. Because if you're paying for it out of crypto proceeds, there's no I in that equation. It's just capital values. So it, look, if they're going to rely on, on income when everyone's awash with capital but, but without cash flow, it will have a big impact on, on lending. And just one final point, I don't think they're going to do what they did in 2018. Uh, between 2015 and 2018, they really pulled the handbrake up pretty hard. I don't think they're going to do that again. I think that it's going to be a far gentler 
regulation of the um, property market. Two reasons for that. One is that most of the people in the property market at the moment are first home buyers or owner occupiers. Um, and secondly, they don't want to crash the market again. So I think that there will be a lot of talk about regulation. They will implement a few things, but I think it will be gentle regulation um, without interest rate rises. John, coming back to your point on that DTI, I mean, to a degree, I, I think the example that you gave about the Haberfuel is, is probably a bit of an exception. Yeah. You know, not, not everyone can afford a 7.7 mil, that type of property, right? Um, in terms of their DTI, I mean, the way to look at it is why is I important in this scenario? It's because essentially they look at when you, whether you can still afford to pay the interest in the longer run from a, you know, kind of ordinary person perspective, right? Like we all earn an income. They look at whether you can service the debt from a longer term on an actual interest rate, maybe plus a 2.5% buffer on top of that. Can you repay the loan with that type of level um, in that sense. And I think that's why they, they still continue to use it, um, you know, because that, that kind of metric will probably apply up to 80, 90% of the population, whereas, of course, the 10% outliers or even more nowadays, I don't know, um, who, has, who was able to make a profit from outside the ordinary, um, you know, not, not relying on income, but rely on other ways of making, making money. That, obviously, that's, that's, a different, that's a different scenario. They're not bound by that. I agree with that. I agree with that. But but it, it's just about proceeds from assets. So the person yes. who bought the $7.5 million place in Haberfield might have sold a another property or a unit, and which yes. means yes. that the only people um, able to buy um, real estate these days are existing uh, people within the existing real estate ecosystem. They're sellers, they're other, Correct. you know. Correct. But I, I take your point. Yeah. And I think that's why it's always been, it's been so a struggle for those people who want to enter the market for the first time as they just find the hurdle gets harder and harder and higher and higher um and i think that's why the regulators want to step in right now is because they're finding that right like the first home buyers the, the number of first home buyers have started to to reduce uh over time uh in essence uh, whereas the invested loans are starting to tick up so that's a clear indication in terms of you know, who's really started to, to, to play in this market now. The investors starting to come back and that's why they needed to, to do something about that uh, in, in that instance. Um, but yeah, look, that's, um, I, I don't think, again, like I think I agree with you, John, in terms of uh, whether they're going to regulate, how they're going to regulate. Most likely they're probably going to cap it somewhere around a DTI of six to seven for investors, and they might only apply to investment loans as well. That's a, that's a, that's probably a way to actually get that. Whether they still give a, a, a bit of relaxation to own occupier who want to be able to push up a little bit, right? Because that's a different story. But we all know that the DTI impacts investors a lot more than own occupiers in the current market. So just by say, for example, capping it at a DTI of six to seven would essentially affect cap out a lot of the investors in the current market. And that would potentially, potentially slow down the price growth for a little bit. Do you, do you think they'll continue to distinguish between owner-occupier interest rates and investor interest rates? 100%. Yep. They've, they've been doing that. They've always been doing that and they will still continue to do so. So mm -hmm. I don't see that. I don't see why that would change, to be honest. So. Awesome. But anyway, that, that leads into an interesting, uh, I guess uh, that, that also leads into our um, the monthly core logic numbers, which has just been released uh, as well. So you know, especially when you look at these figures, um, the the core logic home value index as at 30th of September, you're talking about 
Sydney on a year-on-year. Um, and that one is uh, how much we're looking at. Uh, year-on-year is... Total return for the year, 26.5%. Yeah. Change year-on-year. So that's about 23.56, right? Um, which is pretty scary when you talk about it. And, and that's all dwelling. But if you're talking about houses, that's 28.87. That's close to 30%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a huge jump and it's not sustainable. I mean, the way I look at it, it's just, it's just not sustainable. It's already out of reach for a lot of people, but, um, you know, so something needs to be done about that. Uh, but the interesting thing is even on the change on a month by month basis, you know, you talk about last month, Sydney still had a 1.87 increase on all dwellings. When you talk about houses, it's 2%. When you talk about units, it's 1.46%. Those still are very strong growth records during lockdown in particular. Melbourne, a bit less, 0.83% across all dwellings. Um, houses, 1.12. And units, 0.19. Uh, I guess what's surprising is really looking at Hobart. Hobart. Hobart continues to outperform 2.27 percentage change last month. And you're talking about houses 2.1% and units 2.95%. The units even outperform more than the houses in Hobart. I wonder what that wonder what that means. Is there a shift in terms of people actually finding it's a lot more affordable to pick units in Hobart rather than um, rather than houses now, given that houses are way too expensive. So anyway, there's a few interesting uh, characters and I, I think, John, I might rely on you because I know you're, you're, you've got more insights than me just reading out numbers from the table. Um, is there any, anything in particular from that September table that you'd like to highlight, Ross? Uh, two, two things, I guess. One is, uh, so this is all coming from the core logic data, which is, the, the, I think, the best data set that we have out there and, and it always comes with very interesting commentary. What's interesting, I think, about the commentary is that they talk about, they keep sort of reiterating that the peak of the market in terms of growth was still back in March. So here we are in sort of looking at September data saying it, it's, it's still growing, but the growth is decelerating compared to March. And I think that's statistically true and borne out by the data, but I almost think that's a sort of a meaningless statistic because if if... You, we're growing at very high rates off higher bases every month. So every month it's going off and we're still growing off these higher bases. So uh, if Sydney, I think, did nearly 3% back in March, but it's significantly higher than it was in March and we're still, still growing at 2% a month. And again, these are this is, you know, we're doing a, a, annual growth in one quarter. We're doing, you know, we did 5, 5.7% in the quarter in Sydney. Um which is what you'd expect in a normal year. So, look, uh, you know, I think it's reasonable to accept expect some regulation, um, but I think to some extent the market is, broadly speaking, trying to compensate for the overreach in regulation that occurred back between 2015 and 2018, um, particularly in 2018 when property prices went down, you know, 15% or so. So I think that there's a like a, a correction in the long-term uh, asset values um, that would have occurred but for some regulatory overreach um, not so long ago. The, so, yes, I think we're going to continue to see 
the numbers peak. One other thing I'd say is that the Perth data continues to be really interesting. So you would have noticed that it was suspended for about six weeks while they sorted out the data. And, and Perth has been rolled back into the data set, but it only achieved 0.3 of a percent per month, which is, which is essentially sort of Darwin, Darwin growth. Um, now, it's either, it's either still wrong or if it's right, there's something happening in the commodities market that, 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 that's happening in the sort of second half of this year because we know that commodities were rising really uh, hard at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. We know that commodities have come back a bit. If those numbers are, are right, um, then it's probably telling us something about the commodity market. One other thing, just before we chuck it over to Jazz, one other thing that I thought was interesting in the data set was um, around uh, the amount of stock on the market versus the amount of sales. And I'm trying to find the right section, but it's essentially saying that the amount of properties that are being sold is very, very high. They're at the highest level in about five years, um, higher than 2017. So the number of properties that are being sold is very high, but the number of listings have collapsed. And what, it, what it's suggesting is that two, two things are happening. One is that there are a lot of off-market sales. So they're not being listed, they're just being sold. Um, and it's also suggesting that everything that is being listed is being sold, even though there isn't a lot of <laughs> listing volume. So really interesting. That's over on page three where, um, yeah, the, the number of sales is very high and the number of listings is very low. So that's a very interesting thing. It suggests there's a lot of off-market deals that's happening at the moment. What's your take, Jazz? Wow. I don't know what to add, John. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I should have. Next time I'll pass on to Jazz first before we run over, <laughs> wrap it up with John, I guess, in that case. Um, one thing I was going to add uh, was, um, yeah, I was just uh, I was just talking to David Hall, the Momentum Wealth Buyers agent in WA, and he's basically saying the numbers for Perv is wrong again. <laughs> so yeah. I think that, that probably just answers your question directly. Uh, there we time. go. So yeah. yeah. I, I, one thing I'll add is with the numbers that we were looking at uh, just on Hobart, I think, um, again, with what, what, with what happened in Victoria last year and this year, adding them, add, adding the two years together, uh, a lot of the price growth that has happened in Hobart and Queensland. I think Victoria has contributed a big chunk to that, in my opinion. Uh, and that's reflected in the Victorian numbers as well, to some extent, because uh, it's relatively lower than Sydney. Uh, but other than that, uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And it's how us Victorians had enough, basically. Mm-hmm. either move north or move south <laughs> one way or the other so yeah. I, yeah i don't think the victoria numbers are right either but when it comes to this stuff that the devil's in the detail it's like what is a median price and when yep. you've got such big cities and so many and don't forget it's units and houses it's um it's in a in a ring it's expensive beachside it's outer ring all, all that stuff. you know you come to this very strange concept of what a median is and a median price is whatever sold in the month. So at the beginning of at the beginning of lockdown, median prices dropped not because prices were falling, but because the only properties that were being transacted were units. People were holding on to houses and selling units. And so the average price or the average 
value of a property that was being uh, sold was a unit, a lower value unit. So maybe maybe there's something, there's this sort of some devil in the detail about why Melbourne isn't performing. But anecdotally, what I've heard in Melbourne is that everything's flying out there as well. Oh, yeah. Prices are, uh, I mean, Sorry. it's good performing. It's just that there's a lot of uh, population living at the same time as well. But I guess that raises a good point, Jazz, because uh, we know that the PM announced that they're going to open international borders, uh, you know, letting the, letting the, um, the students, uh, the citizens, the migrants coming back in probably towards the end of the year. Uh, I know Melbourne is a primary migrant city. So, you know, with the, with the population floodgate being opened, um, and I'm assuming that a lot of migrants would still choose Melbourne as their first home as they immigrate to Australia, what do you think is going to happen to Melbourne prices? So I don't think we'll see an immediate impact as soon as the borders open up. Okay. I think, uh, so two things. One, depending upon what regulators end up doing with, yes, the, correct. with the regulations in the yep. lending market, um, along with later in the year, as the borders are fully open, people, people have more confidence uh, and... Uh, there's more migration happening. I think that would surely help Victorian property market without a doubt. But the caveat to that, like I said, is the regulators. It's which one is going to have more force. It's a tug of war, but it's kind of tug of war between the mm. uh, regulators and the new fresh intake of migrants, right? So uh, yeah. It's, it's still net net good for Victoria, I think. I guess the investor's question then would be, is it a good time to snatch up something in Victoria, in Melbourne, instead? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> Given the fact that we know that, you know, there will be migrants coming. And yes, you know, if, if the lending is curbing, it's going, to across, it's going to be across everyone, right? But we're certainly not seeing... Well, assuming the numbers are correct on the core so, logic, then we're not seeing the, the number of growth, the amount of growth that other states are seeing, right? So it's a good time to pick something in, in Melbourne and add into a portfolio for some investors. So like always, uh, yes, as long as you've got the longer time time horizon. But long-term hold, I think it's Melbourne is has always been the most livable city. I'm pretty sure it will be back on the charts at some point again. So... Uh, yeah, yes, definitely yes. Uh, but just longer time horizons, that's all. I'll ask the same question to John, I guess. I know you're very Sydney-focused, but if you're putting your investor hat on today, seeing the results that CoreLogic has released for Melbourne has been continuously subdued for the last few months, do you think it's a good time to enter the Victorian market? The Victorian market? Uh, uh, look, my outsider perspective, and it's it's a relatively uninformed perspective, is that um, Melbourne is a very low yielding market, but with with good growth, and it it appears to me that it is a market that's highly dependent on international immigration, which I think you you touched on, David, as well. So, um, I I my personal preference and my investing style is partial to all of the three eastern seaboard cities with a particular preference for Sydney and Melbourne. 
I just like that they're the biggest, the deepest, the most liquid, the the the, the most, the least seasonal. And look, Melbourne has all those qualities. Um, I, so, I, I do. I think Melbourne's a good a good time to invest in Melbourne. My short answer is I don't really know the market well enough. My longer answer is it's almost always a good time to invest in cities like Melbourne and Sydney, and dot 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 Brisbane as well. I know it's kind of a boring answer. But I'm not a hot spotter, and I don't. I, I I'm more interested in the deal and my place of life than I am in. Uh, you know, the weather. It is a, a good time to buy real estate. Is something that we've chatted about before. But yeah. it's always a good time to buy real estate in Sydney. It's always a good time to buy real estate in Melbourne. It's a pretty standard, pretty standard buyer's agent answer, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's true as well. That is true as well. It's a very weird to answer it. I mean, it's. I know. Uh, Melbourne yeah. is um, like Sydney. Right? <laughs> Obviously, Sydney is higher price tag, but yep. same, right? Melbourne, Sydney, same, same. So we know that the migration is going to start one day. When it starts again, uh, properties will come back in demand over the period of time. Short run may not be a winning strategy, but this is not a 2020 match. It's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a test match, right? So that, that's, that's a good point. Yep. Yeah. And and also like guessing what's going to be the best performing uh, city in the next year. It's another one of those things like it'll always be Sydney and Melbourne uh, with with some you know and Brisbane will do well now and then and then Perth will do well during the resource moments and but Sydney and Melbourne it's where the jobs are. So yeah, all of us did a prediction last year, <laughs> last year on which city will outperform by the end of this cycle. And I'm still sticking to my guts. It's going to be Perth. Well, it's on record. So <laughs> we'll play it back. I think we'll play it back towards the end of the year and see um, and, and see how wrong our predictions were to a degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But speaking about predictions, mate, uh, housing prices, uh, you know, with what we just touched on, because um, that'll be the next thing our, the investors will be really curious to know about. If this lending curve does happen, how would the housing price growth be looking for, say, to say 2022, right? Looking into the next, looking into next year. And I know, you know, like I like I mentioned before, all three of us are kind of a medium long-term type of guy. So that's what investing is all about. Um, but we've got um, Shane Oliver, the AMP Capital Chief Economist, earlier this week uh, has essentially put out his forecast to say that. He believes that the housing price growth will actually slow to 7% next year as the macro potential controls kick in uh, and also the headwinds of worsening affordability. Um, so, yeah, and that was from a likely 20% gain earlier this year without the macro potential regulation kicking in to down to a 7% uh, type thing. So what do you guys think? Do you, do you guys agree with uh, Dr. Shane Oliver in this case? Uh, we reckon is seven percent the blanket approach uh, national nationally, or is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the it's the it's a blanket approach. Yeah, it hasn't actually gone down to um, specific cities. So I still I'll still stick to what I said. Melbourne and Sydney probably will see somewhere close to fifteen percent next year. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and then the other ones. Only will... caveat again is unless regulators go real hard. But I think it's more of job owning than going too hard at this point. Yeah. Okay. John? Yeah, I look, I don't think, I like uh, Shane Oliver, I don't think coming out and saying that 7% growth is going to be what to expect next year is a particularly courageous call given it's the 
45 year average <laughs> performance <laughs> for real estate. It's probably a safe bet. It, it also may, means it's probably it's probably right too. Uh, look, I, I'm more with Jazz. I think that um, depending on how uh, how hard they tighten the screws, that we're more likely to exceed uh, the long term average than um, than underperform it. So something like 12 percent. You know, I don't know about 15, but something like 12% sounds more correct to me. Mm-hmm. Um, 7% would, would feel like a minimum. I mean, I, yeah, feel like a minimum. My broad thesis is that we we, uh, we we keep going for a couple more years with growth. I don't know exactly know what that growth looks like, but then it ends kind of ends kind of badly for a couple of years as well. So um, I, I just feel like it's too early for the music to stop. I think this has to go a bit longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally agree on that one. That's good. All right. Um, so I think that's probably enough property talks for this for this week. Um, Jazz, I think uh, some exciting, some interesting news around crypto this week that you'd like to share. I think the big one was uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell talking about cryptocurrencies uh, this morning, and uh, I think his statement was. They have no intention of banning crypto. Uh, pretty big. Personally, I think it's a pretty big piece of news. Um, and also, China news was out earlier this week, I think it was, uh, that they have banned pretty much all crypto operations, which is trading, mining, all of that stuff. So, again, it's like, Two big countries, one openly stating that we have no intentions of banning crypto and the other one openly stating that we are totally banning it. Right. So uh, very interesting what's going on over there. And especially with what we saw, what China was doing with their uh, digital currency, digital yuan. Uh, so doesn't surprise that China is banning it. When an authoritarian dictatorship bans something, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's probably good. And it, it it's sort of like when when the crazy girl doesn't want to go out with you. It's like, oh no, no I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that analogy. I love that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> is that a, is that a Greek specific one? <laughs> oh, I would never say that all Greek girls are crazy. I would never. <laughs> I would never say that on the air. I would. Or to I'm my wife. Send, I'm going to send this link to your wife. It's on. It's on. It's on air now, John. Sorry, it's too late. <laughs> no, she would. She would process that uh, comment with uh, quiet uh, reflection and sobriety. So we have nothing to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, oh, I'm hope to see you again, John, um, <laughs> next week. <laughs> I think I think part of part of the China band um, jazz, I think, was also in the context of the Evergrande um, bankruptcy. I, I suppose we'd be calling it, or it's mm. a managed bankruptcy. That, that I th- I think that they're trying to manage um, where the where the currency disappears, so how people are getting their money out. And I think what they're trying to do is block one of the escape hatches. So, so crypto is sort of an anonymous way of getting your money out of these, these vehicles. And I, if a lot of money is, is leaking out of their Lehman Brothers moment, I think that crypto was, uh, banning crypto is also a way to say, we don't want you to take the money out of Evergrande and then hide the proceeds. I think it's, I think it's to do with that as well. I think that may have played the role, but that 
uh, it's China has been always trying to ban this stuff, right? So with the likes of big exchanges like Binance that was that originally started from China and got banned, moved to Singapore, then to Malta, whatever. Uh, so I think I think I think you've got a very fair point that they worried about the capital leaving the country. And the easiest way for the capital to leave the country is something like blockchain. So uh, I think that may have played a role, especially after, after the Evergrande news. But having said that, sorry, I was just thinking, thinking out loud. They, 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 they did ban mining before Evergrande default, or unless that was already in pipes that they knew something like this was going to happen. So you never know about that stuff. How, but how crypto friendly is the US? So if all the mining activity and, and, and if, if the crypto kind of epicenter moves back into the United States, how, how friendly is, is the US to crypto? Because there, there are SEC law cases, there, you've got um, uh, Senator Warren looking to regulate it. Uh, it feels like the US isn't that crypto friendly either. And for all the obvious reasons, they, they hold the, the reserve currency and they don't want competition. Europe and, and Asia X China seem to be a lot more friendly places for crypto. Yeah, so I think I think the regulators are still trying to find their feet on how to regulate crypto. Uh, in terms of how friendly US is, I think they they surely have been running they surely have been running behind the curveball up until probably last year and. Uh, uh, seem to have picked up their game a little bit with a lot of the mining operations shifting to uh, North America, Canada, and all that stuff. So, um, and plus we have seen companies like Coinbase that have been publicly listed now, along with a lot of the mining companies as well that have been publicly listed. A lot of the ETFs that have come out uh, that track some of these digital assets, essentially. So I think, I think they're fairly, uh, open-minded, not like China straight on ban the currency. They have never talked about banning it. Uh, and I think this is really going to play in their favor uh, because US obviously has got that reserve currency status. And the biggest threat to the reserve currency would have been something like cryptocurrency. And now that they are open to that as well. So it's going to play a lot in their favor. And this is where I think uh, China is going to really struggle a lot um, and probably lose the battle once again, in my opinion, of trying to become the world power. One thing's for sure that crypto is getting, getting ready. Get, crypto is getting ready for a move. Uh, what direction the move will be in, north or south, no one knows. <laughs> but whichever direction it goes towards, the move is going to be brutal. Um, to the listeners, like always, anything that we discussed on this podcast uh, is not a financial advice. Please do your own research. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we talk about is just speculation, us brainstorming, reading the news, uh, following some of the stuff in the financial world. So uh, do your own research. Don't over leverage. Play safe, stay safe. And we will see you guys next Friday. John Jazz and Abbott.